Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Good afternoon. Well, hey, Pastor. How are you? I'm good. Still in this living this quarantine life. I know, right? I like to think that I'm drinking a little less, but it's really not the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I ran out of sweet vermouth, but I found a new bottle on my liquor shelf. Well, look at that. Yeah, like so I'm a, very excited. Like a COVID miracle. It's a COVID miracle. Yes, yes. <laughs> very excited about that. That's so funny. Yeah, I feel like every time I make a shopping list of like, oh, like, let me just write down the things we're out of. Um, the list starts with wine and beer. Right. And then like all the other things to right. actually sustain my body are after that. Well, what what we do is we try to buy in bulk because, you know, some of these liquor stores will give you a discount if you buy, you know, six or 12 bottles of wine. Right. And so... We we really like the bourbon infused red wine, yes. and so we look for some of those, and we buy several bottles at one time. So much so that we have to have help bringing it out to the car. That makes me very happy. But <laughs> what what this means is we don't have to go every week, right? Because right. we're trying to minimize how much we go out, and well, and we don't so forth. We we do the same thing. Like I went, to, I made a liquor store run this past weekend. And I cannot in any good faith way disclose how much my bill was because it made me throw up in my mouth a little. Right. Um, but I stocked up so that we don't have to go for for a while. Yeah. Um, but then every once in a while, I'll have a night where I'm like, this life sucks. Fuck it. I'm having another drink. Or yeah. I'm having three more drinks. Yeah. And I realize, oh, this, this is why. This is why I'm making liquor store runs. <laughs> right. Well, can I share with you my new favorite drink? Yeah, please. So I'm, I've, I'm, I really think that Old Forester 100 Proof bourbon is a good bourbon to mix things with. It is. So I take two fingers of Old Forester. Okay. Um, few dabs of orange bitters. And some chartreuse. Okay. Like a like a dribble of chartreuse, stirred up, put a few ice cubes in it, and it's and it's like an old fashioned, but I'm not using simple syrup, I'm using right. chartreuse. Right. Yeah, that sounds yummy. Super I mean, good. You, we we like we like our bourbon around we these, do like around our bourbon. these parts. Yeah. Yeah. We are we are cut from the same cloth in that way. We are. People can talk all they want about how different we are, but when it comes to bourbon we are from the same family. Clan. Yes. Clan, kin, all the things. Tribe. Yes, exactly. Um, 
I just want to, I'm looking at the schedule that we've got coming up here and really excited about the schedule that we have. Right. We've, um, we're going to, at some point, air the podcast that we did with Shane Claiborne and Lisa Sharon Harper. Yes. It's going to be phenomenal. We talk about sexuality and gender and identity and um, which are all reduction. Yeah, harm reduction, important conversations. That's going to be a great episode. And we've got our friend John Pavlovitz coming on. Yes! Which is going to be good. I mean, he's really been vocal about getting Trump out of office. And so looking forward to talking about that and among other things. He's one of the few faith leaders who um, has just really decided that – the work that Trump is doing in the world is harmful for all of us and um, is pulling no punches on what his opinions are. And so it'll be fun to to have him with us in a few weeks. Just to tease folks a little and get folks excited about what's happening soon. Yeah. And and then we've got Sarah Cunningham from free mom hugs coming on. You, you, you scored that one. Yeah. I love Sarah. Sarah's, um, you guys may know Sarah's story, but she's um, she's the founder of Free Mom Hugs. She uh, she and her fellow moms of the world do a lot of work uh, out in the world at parades and pride festivals and places where queer folks are um, present to just affirm them and and be uh, a fun and loving and. Um, affirmative voice in their lives. Um, And she has done a lot of kind of standing in at weddings uh, for folks, um, kind of being that parental or, um, you know, uh, kind of the figure that folks need or, or want um, at their, at their ceremonies. um, If they're, if their own parents um, or family members aren't interested in attending. And what a great, like, um, metaphor and visual for belonging right it's beautiful i can't wait to talk with her and then at some point we're going to get jack jenkins on who is the author of the brand new book hot off the press american prophets um i just started reading it it this morning you you must get it it's so good it's so good i was reading it out on the front porch this morning and i was like i could sit here all day and read this but i've got to go take a siesta (laughs) you had just gotten up (laughs) And you, you know, read for a little while and then needed to go take a siesta. Well, yeah, that's, that's how this quarantine yeah. life goes. I know, I know. And then I'm like real productive in the afternoon. Good. Awesome. I am finding that um, my hair is growing. Uh, we talked about my hair last week. Um, I have now decided to forego trying to get it to go upwards and have just decided to embrace my 1990s. Yes. Belinda Carlisle, curly, um, like uh, go, go girl uh, hairstyle. And so um, for those of you that, that don't know what I'm talking about, uh, find my Instagram page um, (laughs) at unholy heretic. And you can see the most recent picture I put up of my, my blonde ish curls. It's actually very, it's very good. I'm, I'm very impressed. I, however, um, only do my hair when I'm, when I need to. And so. Look, this was, this was self-care. I got up yesterday. <laughs> I took a shower. I shaved. 
Oh. I washed my hair, washed everything, of course. Uh, I did, I got out, I, I did my hair, I, I did, I put a little bit of mascara on because yeah. I thought, like, why the hell not? I'm breathing, I'm doing this. Yeah. And, and I, and I had one of those moments where I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, oh, there she is. <laughs> I, 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 it's been a while since I saw you, friend. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I barely recognize myself, but it felt, it felt good. And, um, and my hair is still, you know, good and curly today. Um, yeah. so I'm, uh, yeah, I just, I'm trying to, I, I needed to sink into some normalcy yesterday. And yeah. so it was all about like, let's just pretend this day has something to offer me when I'm done yeah. getting ready. Yeah. It didn't, but it made me feel better for a hot minute. Well, the last time I did my hair was on Monday when I talked to Pete Holmes, um, when I was a guest on his show. Um, yes. And then I just don't do my hair. Yeah. Well, it's fair. It's fair. So let's jump into this week's content. How let's about it? We're talking about May Day, and May Day is something that is celebrated really around the world. Um, but here in the United States and in Canada, May Day on May 1st is celebrated as the beginning of spring. But, but we know that the rest of the world celebrates a different May Day that is really organized around labor rights. You want to give us a quick, quick and dirty history of May Day? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I think, I think if you're like me, you know, a lot of us are used to hearing... Um, us talk about Labor Day in the first weekend in September and, and about workers' rights. And May Day isn't something that a lot of us normally think of. And so um, a little bit of an update or a little bit of history around kind of how it came to be a day for rights um, is that it was originally um, identified in May because in, in Europe, there was a huge um, uprising for the rights of others and the rights for laborers um, in the 1800s. And Chicago um, kind of caught wind of what was happening um, with International Workers' Day in, in Europe and the date was chosen because it aligned with the anniversary of the Haymarket Affair in Chicago. Um, and for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, um, police killed four people at a very peaceful protest um, after someone threw a bomb into the crowd. And these people were peacefully protesting the need for an eight-hour workday, the need for um, the ability to, to unionize and when this uprising in Chicago happened, um, the United States and, and Canada, really the North America agreed to kind of align May Day as a labor holiday and, and have it share the date with International Workers' Day. Um, it's interesting because when Grover Cleveland um, was the president, um, he was afraid that Labor Day would, he was, he was afraid to use May 1st as the date for Labor Day 
because he didn't want to tie it to chaos and bloodshed. He didn't want the date to be associated with the uprising in Chicago. And so um, Cleveland, Grover Cleveland established the first weekend in September as the federal holiday for American workers um, as his way of saying, you know, May 1st may be an International Workers' Day across the world, but we don't, we as the United States don't want to glorify the violence that happened. And so we're going to celebrate it in September. Uh, when we can talk about the irony of, of yeah. that yeah. in a moment. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really interesting um, because, you know, International Workers' Day or, or May Day um, is celebrated all over the world. And we have as a, as a, a North American people largely, um, kind of put it aside and, and ignored it, um, for a host of reasons. Um, and we choose to celebrate or to acknowledge, um, labor rights on the first weekend of September. And I would argue that we don't really use Labor Day, even in September, to acknowledge right. um, labor rights. But that's kind of the history around May Day and and how it how it came to to be. Um, but International Workers Day and May Day all across the world generate um, generate people to rally and yeah. to demonstrate and to sometimes protest. Um, in Europe and and Asia and 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 all across the world, sometimes those those rallies are are violent. Um, sometimes, it, most often, they are peaceful. Um, but many of you, if you look up, if you look up May Day protests across the across the globe, will see that there are certain dates um, where you know May Day demonstrations. Did not go. Um, did did not turn out to be a, a safe place for people to be, mm-hmm. um, and and it's. Uh, I think it's important that we that we recognize the need to acknowledge labor um, and to look at the way that you know supremacy culture and our understanding of workers' rights is really intertwined. And and has a and has a really um, poor poor history for us here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we were kind of texted back and forth, figuring out what we were going to talk about, it, it felt really important to me to use an opportunity, use this as an opportunity to lift up workers' rights, and and I'm talking about the construction workers who are undocumented, who are deemed essential right now, who many of them in Nashville, and if and if anybody's ever been to Nashville recently, all you can see in the sky are cranes because of all the construction that is happening. Many of the construction workers who are working on these sites are undocumented. They are immigrants. They are skilled workers. And many of them, about 80 or 90% of them, are not being paid wages so that they can rent an apartment. So what are they doing? They are sleeping in shelters 
for those who are under-homed. And so I want to talk about workers' rights very broadly today. And, and, and I want us to really tease out why it's important to dismantle and compost supremacy culture and create a new world. Um, it's because, in some part, workers make up the largest contingent of those that is upholding supremacy culture, not by what they do, but by what they are expected to do. Right. And nearly one in five workers in our country right now is foreign born. Yes. Nearly one in five, which is a, which is a number that I think a lot of people wouldn't normally expect or suspect. Um, but, you know, to think that um, more than, you know, just or just shy of 20% of our labor force is foreign born. Um, it speaks volumes to how important this conversation is. Right. And I don't need my calculator to figure out that that's 20%, you know, of the people of the workforce that is foreign born. Right. It's astounding. It, it is astounding. And, and, and if you look, I mean, another, another astounding statistic is that um, of that, of the, of our workforce here in the, in the U S women, people of color, and queer folks make up more than 70% of the workforce. So more than 70% of the workforce is made up of, of a marginalized community member and 20% of the workforce is foreign born. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, so so if if 30% of the workforce is the dominant culture, mm -hmm. they're in the minority. Correct. <laughs> Doesn't feel like it though, does it? Right. But but 30% and of that 30%, I would feel curious to know who are the ones who are making the decisions within that 30%. Yeah. Right? Right. So we we have a majority of minoritized bodies who who is our labor force. And we are talking about the US friends. Just for those of you that are listening outside of the country, these statistics that I'm sharing are 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 US based statistics, just as a clarification. No, that's important. And so we have minoritized bodies making up the majority of our labor force, many of whom are deemed essential workers right now during this global pandemic. 30% of the workforce is white, the dominant culture. And I bet of that 30%, it's like 10% are the, are, are the corporate holders, decision makers. Right. The top one, like the top one to 5% of income makers in, in the country. Yeah. And so there's a real reason to talk about workers' rights and labor rights. There's, right. I mean, this, this is it. This is, this is why we need to spend our time talking about the impact on, on choosing corporations over workers. Correct. In my opinion. And, and the need for 
um, the need for a dismantling of supremacy culture and bigotry and racialized policy decisions that are undergirded by that the by the minority culture as well as by the ability to to unionize yeah which we know a lot of corporations refuse to let people unionize and and when i hear this my immediate thought is oh you don't want your workers to have rights to have to have equity right Right. And it's because we choose profits over people. Correct. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., um, who I am always conscientious to, you know, kind of reference or name, um, mainly because I don't want it to seem as if his importance in any conversation is solely because of the color of his skin um, right. or for me to tokenize the, 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 the work that he did in the world. Um, but... I mean, he understood that the guardians of this status quo that we have have a, an innate need to keep their workers poor yeah. and weak and, and more than anything divided. Mm -hmm. Because if they are divided and if they are divided understanding that, that they are in, uh, unequal – um, then, then it's very hard for them to mobilize and, right. and create a sense of democracy that, that, that can benefit them. Right. And so, you know, um, King, King knew that, you know, this need for working class solidarity was really important, which is part of the reason that he, he was, you know, such a, a, a big supporter of the ability for, those who were in the minority class to to be a, to, to unionize and to and to be a part of of, of union um, activity. I'm glad you brought class into this because we're not just talking about the right to work. We're talking about the fact that 70 percent of our workforce are people of color, LGBTQIA, um, people who are disenfranchised. Women. That create a class of people that are largely impoverished. So I just want to lift up the work of the Poor People's Campaign, yes. who are doing amazing work on bringing attention in this country to the role of poverty and the reality that poverty exists at such a rate that, that, we have to do something about it. So these things go hand in hand in, in, in my mind. Right. Poverty and, and, and workers' rights. Because without, without a connection point, we are just talking about two separate things that don't relate to one another. But what we do know is that these things are implicated and embedded with one another. And if we don't do the necessary work to address both of them, neither of them will be remedied and we will continue to have a world and a culture of supremacy that privileges the few and minoritizes the many. Right. It's, um, it's hard 
it's hard to sit with statements like that. It's yeah. hard to, it's hard to internalize statements like that. Um, you know, I spent, I spent the first 20 years of my professional career in a, um, in a, in a host of corporate settings. And when I say corporate, I mean, um, uh, environments that are, um, that have a hierarchy of, of, you know, president down to peon, Mm -hmm. um, that are, you know, some that were, um, publicly traded, some that were not, some that were privately held. Um, but I always, I always thought of myself as the one at the table with the least amount of voice. Mm -hmm. Um, because I was almost always the only woman, Mm. um, especially as I, as I got, uh, further into my career and started, uh, kind of climbing the ladder. I hate that fucking idiom, but anyway, as I was, you know, as I was, you know, increasing in the positions that I was holding or, or being promoted, um, and, I often spoke about how minimizing it felt and how horrible it was to be the person in the room that is, um, that is explained for that. I mean, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times that a man like restated an idea I had and got the credit for the idea, right. that, that kind of, right. you know, concept content, but I neglected to ever understand for many years that um, I was so not the minimized person in that space because that space never spoke of the people that were down in the factory mm-hmm. or the people that were in our production um spaces or the outsourcing companies that we were using in, in other countries. Right. Um, I, I always had this perception that I was the, I was the victim. I was the one that was, that was having a hard time getting by. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, shame on me, shame, shame on me for thinking that. And um, yes, you faced sexism. Yes. Yes, I did. Yes. Yes. But, um, mm-hmm or and <laughs> I, I neglected in so many ways to recognize the immense amount of privilege that I had. Yeah. Um, because it was primarily um, people of color or people that were part of the working poor class or the, or the, the poor class um, for people who were, um, you know, working in factories in, in other countries that were really, um, really not being treated well at all. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is in it for a lot of people, the working, the working, the worker class is an unseen class because 
they're working in factories, oftentimes outsourced. And well, we just don't see them. I mean, I'm thinking about these little computers that we carry in our pockets. Right. And that's all the craze to have an iPhone or an Android phone. And those are made out of this country by people who are working 12 to 16 hour days and they are expected to meet a certain criteria, certain, you know, like make so many of these things, whatever their part is, but they are the unseen and they are the majority. I have been in so many factories like that. I mean, for those of you that don't know my former life, I worked for, I worked in consumer products for many years and I, um, I've been to Asia more than two dozen times. Um, I've been in factories in China and factories in Vietnam and Malaysia and Taiwan. And, um, I, I have a, um, I have a world perspective from that vantage point um, that not only gives me a heart for the unseen worker in, um, in, in countries other than our own, but it also has solidified my understanding and my need to fight for a living wage for the unseen workers that are a part of our of our democracy here in the US. Um, they, they are as unseen and they are often as poorly treated and they often have as much expected of them as <clears throat> workers in countries other than ours. Um, and yet we, uh, we glorify the fact that because the product is being made in the U.S., that product right. must also be, um, mu that product must also be being made with more integrity. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and that's just, it's just simply not, the, it's not the case. Yeah. It's just not the case. And so I think, I think we both have a heart for um, those who are disenfranchised economically and, and, trying to create conditions for workers to be seen and workers to be treated fairly it is um is is has been done for a long time and there are there's legislation around worker treatment even those who are lgbtq right um I think in 29 states, you can still be fired for disclosing your sexual identity, sexual orientation. And so, um, so what we're really talking about here is the class of people who don't have access to the corporate tier mm -hmm. that, that protects them. Yes. And what we know is that this class that has no protection makes up 70% of our labor force here in this country is largely disenfranchised. Count the white men in that 30% who are identified as, um, I mean, you know, are, are, are the, are the, you know, the holders of, 
of the goodies, but yet we know that of that 30%, a large percentage of that are poor and working poor white men who, who, who have privilege in very few ways when it comes to, to their, to their rights as workers. Right. Right. So I mean, 70% is a, I mean, it's a low number for all intents and purposes, because it doesn't take into account the the white men that are a part of that. Yeah. um, That 30%. You know, when I heard that, that, Construction workers who are undocumented were staying in in shelters. I just thought that, you know, like, when are we going to start giving people a fair wage? I mean, I mean, Congress and the Senate are still fighting on whether or not to create um, a $15 minimum wage. And I know that the Poor People's Campaign has been fighting that, too. And I'm just like... Why don't we want people to have enough? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Why don't we want people to have enough? And why are we continuing to to, to put systems in place that uh, that allow us to continue to discriminate against? I mean, if we're not going to give them a working a living wage, then then let's also not put in enact laws that that continue to minimize and continue to make it difficult for them to to make what they are making at this at this moment right right exactly like, it's exactly. like a double whammy yeah yeah it doesn't make sense to me i mean um and you know some of these shelters you can only stay for so long before you have to move along and so who so a lot of these construction workers are homeless actually in nashville when it comes right down to it or they are or they are living in um family homes you know group homes so far out of the city yeah um that their work days are extended by hours mm-hmm. simply by trying to make their it travel to the city and and exit the city in order to get to the place where they're going to lay their head at night yeah so we believe this is a justice issue. We believe this is an issue that we should all be fighting. Um, if we're going to dismantle supremacy culture, we we need to create conditions for workers to have not just the right to work, but the right for fair and equal pay. We know that women are are sorely underpaid compared to their white counterpart. And we also know that affirmative action benefits white women. So there's a lot of work to be doing. Correct. And and we have to be tackling this in a multi-pronged way to create the kind of world we long to inhabit. Yeah. You know, the you you made the you made the statement the right to work. Um I mean that's a that's a double entendre phrase as well, right? Because um, everyone individually has a right to labor and a right, labor as in verb, (laughs) um, and and a right to earn. Um, And yet, you know, it was predominantly Southern states who put in place right to work laws Mm -hmm. so that they could... um, 
make it so that specifically workers of color were unable to kind of form strong unions to help them right. um, maintain dignity and, and fair wages on the job. I mean, right to work laws that are primarily based in Southern states um, also have as racist and supremacist a past um, as, as, as other laws that, you know, benefit the rich and the powerful and minimize the, the marginalized and the, and the laborer. Well, maybe the language needs to change. Maybe it needs to be the freedom to work. Ah, I like that. The freedom to work. And that in freedom, you are also guaranteed a fair and just wage for your work. Yes. And, and could that be the imagination that we put forth? Right. And invite people to think about doing for themselves. I wonder where in your community, friends, you are seeing this living out in real time. I mean, I could tell stories until I'm blue in the face of people that I know who are um, suffering right now um, and, and kind of quarantine days aside, um, but, but people who have been um, embattled by horrible working conditions, um, high expectations on them, um, sexist and racist and homophobic language that, that is a part of their everyday. I mean, every one of us has a story, at least a story that we can tell of someone we know that's, um, that's being asked to do things or asked to work in conditions that are less than equitable. And I think, you know, these days of quarantine only make some of those things more um, evident, right? Mm -hmm. We're hearing stories of people who are being deemed as um, essential workers um, and yet um, really don't work in industries that are considered essential. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are hearing stories of, I mean, stories of, of laborers in meat processing plants mm. that are overrun with the, the COVID-19 virus right. who are being mandated to work because the president has signed an executive order telling these factories that they can't close down in order to get their people healthy. Um, those are stories that, that we are seeing happen on the national news. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are stories happening every day in our communities and with our friends and with the people that we know and love um, that, and those are the places where we have the best potential to act. Mm-hmm. Those are the places where we um, can and should be getting our hands dirty in the work. Um so I wonder, I wonder as you, as you kind of engage this episode with us, I'd love for you to think of the stories that you know, the people that you know that are, that are affected by this. Um, and what might that mean for you and, and the way you engage in this work in the world? How might you, how might you change um, something you're doing or the, uh, how might you uh, engage in um, or benefit 
their their the their situation so that so that we can right some of these wrongs. You know, as you as you mentioned the meatpacking plants and whatnot, I heard that news too in Iowa. Um, and it's just um awful that these people don't have a chance to get well. I'm thinking about my own practice of trying to buy locally. Mm-hmm. And that for me, I think that that's going to be a shift for me is to start by more locally, more meat products locally. Um, it will cost a little bit more, but I'll be supporting sustainable farming. And your, and your money will be recirculating in your community. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that I do, um, one of the projects that I've worked on um, in the world is uh, um, I, I attempt to um, partner up minority entrepreneurs with spaces that um, they could use for free to, to start businesses, to, to imagine new worlds for them. Um, and out of that work, um, one of the statistics that I came across several years ago was that in communities of color, when one of when a, when a community member of color earns a paycheck, seventy nine dollars of one hundred out of one hundred dollars, so eighty percent of their paycheck goes to support a uh, goes to support a company that is not a part of the community that they live in. Mm. And that's easy to think of if you think okay we have you know the the places that um we shop are big box stores mm-hmm. are you know large grocery stores are um international pharmacy chains Mm-hmm. Um, they are the places with the most competitive pricing because they um, are able to get their their goods from a variety of places, and they have so many stores that they're able to get things you know cheaply. Um, and and this is whether I'm talking about a Walmart or whether I'm talking about a Family Dollar. Um, and that is that is where many people um, are. Many people shop in in all communities. That's where we spend our money. And if that money is being put into the hands of a cashier at Family Dollar or a cashier at Walmart, that money is instantly leaving the neighborhood where you live. Right. That money is no longer invested in the neighborhood where you are. Um, Every time you place an Amazon order, your money is leaving your community. Um, Every time you buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, your money is leaving your community. Um, and so, yeah, you're right, Robin. Any way that you can that you can creatively find a way to have your money recirculate, mm-hmm. to, to, to pay someone who is living and working and raising a family in the community where you live, the more our money circulates in the communities where we find ourselves, the better off all of our uh, of of our small businesses will be yeah. um 
And I mean, that that's a little bit of a tangent off of May Day and this conversation around workers' rights, but we all recognize that small businesses are the backbone of every single one of the communities we live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, half of the small businesses where you spent the majority of your money were devastated in the tornadoes in Nashville. Right. I mean, the places where you gave a lot of your income mm-hmm. are, are, are in the process of trying to rebuild. Um, I mean, that speaks to, you know, who, who and where you're choosing to, right. to, to, to place your, your trust in your assets. Right. And the places that I supported here in Nashville were places that also supported workers. Right. right. And so not only are, not only is that place taken away from me, but that safe place to work and earn a fair wage is also taken away from workers. So um, I don't know. I thought it was important for us to address May Day and um, to I'm be in solidarity with workers yeah. because um, as, as many people know, I mean, we're not, we're not making bank on anything in the <laughs> social justice world and we're not, we're not trying to. Right. But we are trying to raise awareness so that people can have enough. It, 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 it never ceases to amaze me why we live in a culture and in a country where some people, those at the top, don't want other people to have enough. There should not be any poverty in this country. There should not be any homelessness in this country. Right. We, we should have access to medical care. I should not be paying, you know, I just, I just received um, an insurance bill. I had to have a medical test a couple weeks ago and my insurance doesn't cover it. And so thankfully Vanderbilt gave me a discount, a significant discount right? so that my bill isn't, isn't $1,500. It's $200. But, you know, we should all have adequate health care, but a lot of us don't. And we and and even those who are a part of the workforce, who are a part of that seventy plus percent of poor and marginalized members of of our communities, are working their butts off in systems where even those things are not guaranteed for them. Right. And right. And it it just simply can't continue to be that way. And that's why we do the work that we do. This has been good. Yeah. Happy May Day, y'all. Happy May Day. Let's get free. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, why don't you, uh, why don't you uh, stage a, a little international workers protest in your living room? And oh, um, yeah. quarantine life. And, and figure out, and figure out uh, where, where your efforts are, are best directed. Yes. Until next time. We'll see you next week, friends. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com.
and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a tea. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>